welcome back to another Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. And this time we'll be covering a little bit of O's Manual Chapter 77 on head injury. Uh, and we covered ICP monitoring before in Tasty Morsel number 20. A key principle here is cerebral perfusion pressure or the CPP. This is easily calculated at the bedside as MAP minus the ICP. Of course, this is only easy if you actually have an ICP monitor and are able to do basic math. Uh, the CPP should probably be around 60 to 70, which assuming your patient is unconscious means that the ICP is probably somewhere north of 20 millimeters of mercury. And therefore your MAP should probably be in around the 80 to 90 millimeter range. If you actually have a monitor, then you can be much more scientific about your MAP target. However, a moment's thought about the complexities and unknowns of cerebral blood flow and perfusion in the acutely head-injured patient should hopefully make you realise that targeting a CPP is an incredibly blunt tool for so fine-tuned an instrument. But given the lack of anything better and strong recommendations from international guidelines, then we better stick to it. O splits TBI into two phases, which I find useful as a concept, even if I still find it unclear when a patient transitions from one phase to the next. So firstly, there's the early hypoperfusion phase. So after a bump to the noggin, there is a rise in pressure from extraaxial lesions or from cerebral edema. And this necessitates a bump in your map to keep your CPP in the right range. The hyperemic phase is the second phase and about a quarter of patients will have this and it's somewhere around day three to seven and it seems really quite ill-defined but it's suggestive that at this stage you can lower your map targets a little bit. Overall, the basic bundle of interventions in the IC ICU for raised ICP include sedation. So this is needed um, for the endocrine tube, but uh, also it reduces metabolic rate um, considerably and it does reduce the ICP correspondingly. There is no clear advantage of giving one agent over another, although the, the ileus-inducing agent thiopentone is often used in refractory settings. Stress ulcer prophylaxis is important, and this is one of the groups particularly at risk of GI bleeding. Keeping the head up at 30 to 40 degrees can promote venous drainage and indeed you'll see ET tubes taped to the cheeks rather than circumferential ties in many neurosurgical units. DVT prophylaxis should be given, the timing of which is a topic all in itself and frequently delayed longer than it probably should be. The phrase used typically is that when the appearances in the CT scan are quote stable, whatever that means, but it probably does include the absence of fresh bleeding at the very least. Carbon dioxide should be in the normal range and the same goes for oxygenation. And now is not the time to pursue permissive hypercapnia. And so for your patients who have a head injury and ARDS, this can be really, really challenging. The BTF guidance, the Brain, Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, they're the key document that should be referenced uh, and it's well worth a read for any exam candidate and indeed any condition dealing with traumatic brain injury. So the following really is a summary of just some of the headline kind of recommendations that they have. So with regards to decompressive craniectomy, a bifrontal craniotomy is not recommended to improve neurological outcomes, which is a way of acknowledging the very important DECRA trial. Um, if it is done, then a large frontotemporal craniectomy is recommended. Um, of note, these guidelines, the BTF guidelines, were published before the results of the more recent Rescue ICP trial, just to keep in mind. With regards to hypothermia, there is a substantial literature and a compelling physiological argument that cooling would be a good thing for the injured brain. However, a sequence of trials have put this to rest, with the key ones probably being the Eurotherm trial in 2015. That was an RCT of 400 patients with an ICP greater than 20, and it showed that you had a small impact of intracranial pressure when you cooled patients here. Probably more importantly, the Polar trial in 2018, this was a 500 patient RCT, no difference, and again, it didn't really have that much of an impact on ICP cooling. There was, however, a decent increase in pneumonia here. Uh, and so cooling and the idea of it for TBI has fallen out of fashion. 
Hyperosmolar therapy. Okay, so mannitol is effective in controlling high ICP, but it's typically recommended to be reserved for those that there look like they're nearly herniating. Importantly, in these guidelines, there's no recommendation on hypertonic saline, which is actually incredibly commonly used. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's just that there isn't enough data really yet to sell it over mannitol. And so local practice will prevail on this. In terms of CSF drainage, an extraventricular drain can be useful to drain CSF and lower pressure in the early period. Uh, with regards to steroids, the answer is no, no. And just one more time for the people in the back, no. With regards to seizure prophylaxis, it, it, the statement's a bit funnily phrased. It says, not recommended for preventing late epilepsy, which is a somewhat obscure answer to a question no one asked, as we're much more interested in using it to prevent early seizures. With regards to that, they say phenytoin is recommended to reduce early within one week seizures. And uh, list, uh, you should give it when, in quotation marks, benefit outweighs risk. Um, so again, that's always a bit of a tricky thing to know. Um, it, it, one other thing I'll add is early seizures are not known to worsen outcomes. So again, what you'll find is practices all over the map when it comes to this. Um, also, there's not enough evidence to recommend Kepra over phenytoin, but you can guess what happens in real life. So tagged onto the end of this post on ICP management, I have included some recommendations from a separate BTF guideline that covers when to operate on traumatic brain injury. In reality, this probably should have been covered first as trying to manage an expanding extradural with mannitol and thio is doing the whole thing wrong. Um, these particular guidelines could be printed out and rolled up and used as a stick to beat your neurosurgeons into operating, um, but I jest. So for subdural hemorrhage, um, when should you operate on this? If the clot is thicker than 10 millimeters with more than 5 millimeter shift, regardless of GCS, you should probably operate. Lows with less severe numbers in terms of measurements, but low GCS or unequal or fixed pupils should also get surgery. With regards to extradural hemorrhage, um, it's okay to conservatively manage this if the total volume is less than 30 centimeters cubed, that's less than 15 millimeters in depth, less than 5 millimeters in midline shift, and the GCS is greater than 8. Pretty much all with um, a volume greater than 30 centimetres cubed should be evacuated. With regards to parenchymal TBI, so big contusions, um, any collection that's greater than 50 centimetres cubed should probably be um, evacuated. And they also recommend ones with greater than 20 centimetres cubed and a shift greater than 5 millimetres with a GCS of 68, which is a very niche specific recommendation. With regards to the posterior fossa, most of these will end up getting evacuated due to the very tight anatomic space and you've got mass effect and the GCS goes down very quickly here. And finally, with regards to depressed fractures, open and uh, depressed fractures that are greater than depressed, greater than the thickness of the skull will generally get surgery, though not all. In reality, I find this guidance is viewed somewhat loosely by our neurosurgical colleagues, and given the level of evidence that it's based on, they may well be right. But we do run into the usual um, neurocritical care dilemma of self-fulfilling prophecy here. Managing some of these patients with medical therapy when they should have had surgery will inevitably result in bad outcomes. Including, I realise at this stage, I've also neglected to mention the three-tiered approach to ICP management. You provide therapies for ICP in a stepwise fashion, but alas, I ran out over time already, so this will have to wait to another episode. For references, O's Manual, Chapter 77, and the BTF guidance for management of, of traumatic brain injury and the BTF surgical guidance are all linked to in the show notes. Mm -hmm.